So, without further ado, I cannot wait to introduce you guys to Vivek Sankaran, for those of you who don't know him. So Vivek and his wife Amy have been part of congregations I've been part of for probably the last 15 years. In fact, we played on a softball team before you guys even had kids, and that seriously was probably almost 15 years ago, which is crazy. So Vivek is a law professor at U of M, and then I have to look at this to make sure I get it right. He's also the director of the Child Advocacy Law Clinic and the Child Welfare Appellate Clinic. And this is where law students go and they represent people in the, um, in the law, law, in the something, he'll tell you. <laughs> I know that he's just always got a heart for social justice and he represents really the most powerless and poor people in our legal system. And so I'm just happy that he's here to share his heart um, with us. And also it helps us just think about how our own faith applies just in our regular vocations and the things that we're doing day to day. So give Vivek a great warm welcome. First of all, thank you all very much uh, for having me. It really is a privilege and an honor uh, to be before you. Uh, as Emily mentioned, I feel uh, as if my mic is not working. That's yeah. <laughs> it is on. You want me to straight? We're good? Uh, there we go. Uh, so as Emily mentioned, I've been connected uh, with this congregation, or at least members of this congregation, for almost a decade now, if not more. Uh, I met Emily on the softball field. Uh, we were not very good, as what you might imagine, uh, but we sure did have a, a lot of fun. Uh, so a couple of months ago, Emily had emailed me uh, asking me to come here to speak a little bit about my work. Uh, and just to be honest, her invitation provoked uh, a pretty wide range of uh, re reactions uh, within me. Uh, at first, I was incredibly excited to talk about what I do. Uh, anytime I get a chance to talk about my work, but mainly the families that I get to work with, uh, it is truly sort of an honor to, to do that because I just love my job. Uh, at the same time, the idea of speaking uh, at a church uh, sort of terrified me, right? So I am, uh, I am not uh, any sort of expert in Christianity. Uh, I've never spoken uh, before a church, uh, even though I, part of my job is I speak to, to audiences quite often. Uh, churches have never been uh, a group that I've spoken before. Uh, and I'm a newbie in sort of uh, figuring out my own sort of faith journey and trying to sort of figure out what God wants of me, uh, trying to understand who God is and what he asks of me. Um, these are questions that I think about often, um, but I have very few answers as I'm very, very uh, young in my journey. What I do know is the more I think about faith, uh, the more I read uh, stories of Jesus and his teachings, uh, the more they speak to me. The more they speak to me as to what type of person and professional I want to be. Because of some of the recurring themes that I see um, as I read his stories. Uh, themes like speaking up for the least among us. Uh, and other themes like trying to overcome our genetic predisposition to judge others. And I really do think that we have a predisposition to just sort of go along and want to judge other people because it's sort of the natural flow of things uh, and how that really keeps us 
from forming solidarity uh, with the least among us. And that's really sort of at the heart of what it is that I want to talk about today. Um, so my own spiritual journey, uh, just to sort of give you a little bit of background of, of the, sort of the journey that I'm on, uh, began a few years back when something sort of possessed me just to start reading random stories uh, in the Bible. I wish I had some sort of grand story about what inspired me to do this or that moment of epiphany, um, but I don't. I just started picking up the book and started reading random stories. Uh, and it was sort of advice that I'd gotten from a colleague of mine who uh, is deeply spiritual. And I sort of said, where do I start? How do I do this? What do I, what do, I do? And he goes, just pick, the, pick up the Bible, start reading random stories, and see what moves you, and spend some time reflecting on it. Um, so one of the stories that I read early on was from the book of John, um, and it was a story of Jesus being asked to condemn a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Um, the religious leaders at the time were testing Jesus, trying to sort of egg him on and get him to, to say something, uh, and it would have been convenient for him to pile on, to join the crowd, to do the politically popular thing, which is to pick on the powerless. Um, to me, when I read that story, his response was both stunning and instructive. Um, first, he ignored the challenge, like refusing to take the bait and tried to ignore him sort of by writing in the sand, not really sort of giving credence to what it is that they were saying. Um, but then he cleverly turned the table on the accusers, right? And he indirectly asked them who amongst them had never sinned. And he stood in solidarity with this woman in front of this large crowd who had been uh, accused while the others fled like cowards. Um, what happened next to me was even more powerful, that Jesus refused to condemn this woman, who everyone was trying to sort of get him to pile on uh, and, and isolate her and marginalize her. Um, and then the woman remained to listen to Jesus' instructions to her. She didn't flee like the rest of them. And what struck me as so powerful in that instance was the connection that he had formed with this person who had been an outcast in society. And to me, this story really challenged uh, uh, sort of me to think about what type of lawyer uh, and person that I was um, and who I wanted to be, right? I wanted to be the lawyer that avoided petty fights. Now, for the, any of you who know lawyers, I know there are a couple, like we love petty fights, right? Set foot in court, this is what we do uh, because we have this sort of, we're built to sort of engage in this type of, of, of arguments. Um, but I wanted to be the lawyer who listens. Again, not one of our strong suits, right? Lawyers like to talk and speak. Uh, and we don't like to listen so much. Um, but more importantly, I wanted to be that lawyer who didn't condemn, who didn't judge, and really who stood in solidarity with those that are powerless and have been cast aside uh, by the rest of society. And so the question then, uh, and the story prompted me and gave me the space to reflect on whether I in fact had been that type of lawyer. When I had started practicing law, uh, I graduated from uh, U of M Law School uh, back in 2001, uh, and I got this sort of dream job, which is to go to Washington, D.C. and represent kids in foster care. And the, uh, I mean, it was sort of like you couldn't write a better script as type, the type of job that I, that I wanted to have. But in my mind, and the sort of the attitude that I took when I started working was one where I thought I was going to save these kids from bad parents. 
right? That was my job. I was there to go protect these kids, get them out of these bad homes, put them in foster care where they could have uh, a better day. Uh, it was a very sort of one-dimensional way of viewing the world. And that's sort of the attitude that I had uh, when I started practicing. And I think this sort of one-dimensional way of thinking really surrounds us, right? We're really, this is what society uh, is often like, right? We label people uh, so it gives us a real convenient way to avoid tackling thorny issues and to avoid seeing the complexities that life has. Uh, just think about how we refer to people who are undocumented, right? We call them illegals. Think about people who spent any time in prison. We call them felons. Think about people who are mentally ill. We call them crazy. Because it just gives us a really easy way to sort of label people and then dismiss them. Uh, and in many ways, that's exactly what I had when I started working. I had this very sort of, uh, uh, sort of uncomplicated uh, view of the world. Um, and I carried this mentality for a couple of years, right? I would just sort of dutifully go to court. I would disregard the fact that a lot of my clients had parents, because for me it didn't matter, because were, it was those people, those people who had done, uh, in my mind, horrific things to children, uh, so it's my job to save them. But then one day, I was thrust into a position where I had to question a lot of my own uh, conceptions about the system. Uh, and now it was uh, a situation involving one of my adult clients. I had a couple of adult clients at that time, and she was a domestic violence victim. She, wasn't, she had no kids in the foster care system. I was helping her get a protection order uh, against an uh, abusive uh, husband. And she uh, called me at about 4.30. I still have this day sort of etched in my mind. You have these moments in life where you'll never forget sort of these turning points as to sort of how your career uh, goes and how your life goes. It was 4.30 in the afternoon. Uh, I received a panicked phone call from her because she said that Child Protective Services was on the way to her home to remove her children. And I, I was floored, right? I had seen this client, uh, Lisa B., with her children before. Uh, nothing but a loving, caring mother. And I asked her what was the problem, what were the allegations? Uh, and she said the allegation was that she had left uh, her children uh, with her 12-year-old daughter, her oldest daughter, while, her, while she went to the laundromat. Uh, and now, I don't know about you all, but in sort of my community, they call that babysitting. Yeah. Uh, in Washington, D.C., where we were in this poor uh, African-American community, uh, they were alleging that this was neglect. So I wish I had this sort of grand story where I put on my cape, became a superhero, went and saved the day. But as a young attorney, uh, I didn't do that, right? I panicked, I froze, I started stuttering and mumbling on the phone, and I did what I knew how to do best, which is run down the hall and grab a supervisor. Uh, who then got the phone, and by the grace of God, we spent uh, the next 20 minutes on the phone with a, with a prosecutor who happened to be in his office at 4.30 on a Friday, who allowed us uh, to have a court hearing the next day before this decision was made uh, to, uh, to return, whether to remove this child or these children from the home. So here I am, a Saturday morning now, and this is the first time in my life that I was ever asked to represent a parent in a foster care case. Uh, and for the first time in my life, in my, in my legal career, I experienced what it was like to be the other. 
Now, I had experienced that sort of in my own life, being a person of color in a small, white, uh, New Jersey sort of suburb. Uh, but here, armed sort of with my law degree, uh, I had always, I had never experienced that. I hadn't thought about it. Whenever I entered the courtroom on behalf of the children, we used to joke that I had sort of a halo, that they were just glad to see me, and, and everyone wanted to talk to me. And there was never any sort of uh, pushback that I got for what I wanted. Uh, so I walked into the court this, uh, this Saturday, uh, and for the first time I experienced sort of the stares and the glares, the sort of the various microaggressions of people not wanting to talk to you, sort of the private conversations going on over there about me and my client um, that I used to be privy to but was no longer. Um, and sort of the, the looks of disgust that uh, how could I stand with that woman, that woman accused of uh, neglect. Even this judge who I had appeared before uh, countless times when I went to sit down in a chair yelled at me for not sitting in the right chair. Little did I know there were assigned seats now in court. Um, but it was one of these sort of uh, eye-opening experiences for me that I had never, ever, ever thought to see the world uh, from the perspective of parents in child welfare cases. And this changed everything for me. Um, this changed perspective really forced me to recognize some of the harsh realities uh, of the child welfare system. And for the first time, I started viewing all of these parents as themselves victims. They were victims of domestic violence. They were victims of human trafficking. They were victims of child abuse and sex abuse themselves as children. And stunningly, the second that I started looking into my cases, I recognized that so many of the parents in our cases were themselves children who were in foster care. And these were realities that I never even, I, I chose not to look at, the, at these realities um, when I had my blinders on, when I was there in my savior complex trying to save these kids from my one-dimensional view of these parents being horrible people. So I left the, my job uh, at the Children's Law Center in Washington, D.C., uh, and got the opportunity to come back here uh, to the state of Michigan, to the university, uh, where I decided to focus much more of my time um, on the interests of parents uh, because of this changed perspective that I have. And honestly, there aren't few people in the country who do this work from the perspective uh, of parents who are accused of child abuse and neglect. And what I learned is that it's a population uh, that likes to judge, that is judged often by their past actions rather than who they uh, currently are. And this is something that I've been really thinking about uh, a lot recently. And I, wanna, I, I just want to share the story with you about a client of mine who I currently have have that gives you a flavor for what it is that these parents experience in our cases. Uh, and this is a client, her name is sort of in the, in the news now, so I can tell you her full name. Uh, Michelle Gatch is a client of mine who a year ago, she has a three-year-old child, a year ago she worked two jobs uh, to help her older daughters. Came back uh, late one night, it was about 4.30 or 5 in the morning, uh, and went to bed. Uh, and she committed a, uh, a crime that I'm sure none of us have done, which is called sleeping in. Uh, and she has a three-year-old child at home. The three-year-old child gets up in the morning, uh, and like any three-year-old child would do, sort of thinks of himself as the man of the house. Right? I have a three-year-old sitting right there, and if you spend, spend two minutes with him, he will tell you that he's the boss. I think he's called, he, he has said repeatedly that he's the ruler of us, over and over and over again. And so... But this three-year-old child was thinking to himself, what do I do every morning with my mom? I walk the dog. 
while mom's asleep, but he's three. He can, he's the ruler of the world, right? So he can go and he got his dog out, opened the door, and went to the park out across the street to walk the dog. And so you can see how this is going to play out. A local family discovers this child. Then they call the police because this child is without a parent. All sort of appropriate things that they absolutely should do. Uh, the police come to the home, check the home out. Uh, the home is fine. So the police drop the child off and don't do anything. They notify Child Protective Services. Uh, nothing happens for two days. Child Protective Services says, yeah, we're not going to do anything. I mean, there's no, we'll come out on Monday. It's the weekend. We're not going to come out and, uh, and do anything right now. Two days pass, nothing happens. And then Child Protective Services runs a check on my client and discovers that her rights were terminated nine and 14 years ago to other children because she was in a horrific domestic violence relationship where her abuser uh, uh, hurt her children. And uh, she struggled to leave that relationship for, during, during that period, but had not seen this man uh, in over six years. Armed with that stale information, uh, Child Protective Services immediately went to the home that Monday, immediately took this three-year-old child, put this child in foster care, then went to the juvenile court. And what I think is sort of the most horrifying and tragic thing, asked that visits immediately be suspended between this mother and this child and then immediately moved to terminate the rights of this mom based solely on the fact that this parent's rights were terminated in the past. And the trial court granted uh, the, the request uh, by the state in this case. Uh, and so to this day, our, my, our client has not seen her child uh, in over two years after that Monday. And I think of this for the, sort of from the perspective of this kid and what we're doing to these children, but it sort of all feeds into this mindset of defining people based on what we think we, they are, um, based on what happened in the past. Uh, and I tell you this story uh, because I am now proud to stand with parents like Michelle, who are uh, the accused. Um, I also am proud to recognize now, in a way that I never recognized before, that people are complicated. And that the very people who are accused of abuse and neglect are also the same people who tuck their kids in bed at night, read them stories, take them to activities, um, and protect them from harm. But that's not the narrative that you're ever going to hear when you hear about my world. Part of it's the media, right? What, 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 what does the media drive? Uh, the media drives a, uh, a sort of a perception that the parents in these cases are monsters, that they're deviants, that they're people who do um, horrific things uh, from uh, uh, to their children. What you'll never hear though is a narrative that 70% of cases that enter the child welfare system are because of poverty related neglect, not abuse. You won't hear the narrative that one third of uh, children in foster care, according to many studies, could go home if we just provided their families housing. You won't hear the narrative that there are thousands of kids in foster care every year who could go, who were later uh, found by courts not to have been mistreated at all, right? We see, we remove, then we realize the errors of our way. And I think we do this and we keep this narrative, and this, I'm just using the foster care system as an example, I think of sort of how a broader society views a lot of problems. It just makes our life easier. 
because it gets messy when you start viewing people in this sort of multi-dimensional way. It's far easier to stand with the crowd to condemn the adulteress, to judge her, because it's going with the flow. Right? That's what, kind of what we all do uh, in society. The other question that I was thinking about as I uh, read the story in the book of John is this idea uh, that, that of Jesus asking the, the teachers the question of who has earned the right to cast stones. And you think of the foster care system, and one question I often ask myself is, what right has this system earned to judge others? Um, and just to give you sort of a flavor of some of the statistics, um, it's a system that really struggles with discrimination. Right here in Michigan itself, uh, African-American children make up 16% of the population and close to 40% of children in foster care. It's the same sort of dynamic we see in the criminal justice system, the juvenile delinquency system. Uh, we have the same problem nationwide with Native American children that they are uh, disproportionately involved in our systems. And there's, I mean, for anyone who sort of wants to look deeper, there's just so much that the, uh, we weren't even hiding the fact in the 1970s that that was our intent to break up native families so that we could save these children and get them, uh, get, them get rid of their language, get rid of their ways. Uh, NPR did a great story of the, of the struggles of, so of South Dakota, particularly, as it relates to some of these issues. Um, we're a system that also uh, routinely fails to meet the needs of many of the kids in foster care. Um, at least 16 states across the country uh, have been found by federal courts to have violated the constitutional rights of children in foster care, Michigan being one of them. And if you talk to, and this is sort of despite the heroic efforts of many great individual foster care workers uh, and child protective workers who just do, have a, it's sort of a really difficult uh, uh, job, um, but it's routine in our systems to have kids who are, uh, they jump from home to home, who jump from school to school, who are separated uh, from their families, uh, some states worse than others. And so unsurprisingly, you get study after study showing that uh, kids who are similarly situated do better at home than they do uh, in the foster care system. And perhaps the most damning evidence of all is kids who age out of the foster care system. Right, so if you want to know what, uh, what happens to, to kids who age out of the foster care system, I'd encourage you to go one of two places, either Covenant House in Detroit, which is a homeless shelter, where kids have sort of the, 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 the pipeline straight from their last placement in the foster care system to, uh, to a homeless shelter, or go down to Jackson, Michigan, right, where you have the, uh, a bunch of prisons, because so many of the people who are incarcerated now uh, spent time in foster care. Um, I know this all too well well as one of my former clients in Washington, D.C., uh, is now incarcerated in Maryland uh, for the next 40 years. And Alante, when he was in foster care, spent time in over 25 different placements. 25 placements. And we're surprised that he, he is incarcerated. I mean, it's sort of a form of neglect that I couldn't even imagine uh, how I, what I would feel like if I were a child. And so the question is, have we all earned this right to condemn as harshly um, as we do when I think many of our systems uh, don't do uh, that much better? So I want to leave you with three broad takeaways, uh, and maybe a fourth one. Um, first
first is uh, a quote that really uh, has stuck with me, and it was from uh, an activist, Brian Stevenson, uh, who teaches at NYU Law School, and really is, if you want to watch an incredible TED Talk, please sort of Google Brian Stevenson. He's done this sort of profound work on, uh, with juvenile uh, uh, offenders who are, have spent life, who are spending life uh, in prison, and really getting us to think about those issues differently. And his quote is that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Think about how we would feel if people judged us, if the only thing they knew about us is our bad days, right? When we yell at our kids, when we yell at our spouses, when our house is dirty, someone came in, got a snapshot, and made our lives all about that. Right, but for the families that I represent, that's what the reality is. I see them at their worst moment, and we all assume that they're like that at every single moment um, of their lives. And we have to remember that people are far more than what we see when we see them in these moments of crisis. That too, and this is in the words of uh, author Rick Bragg, every life deserves a certain amount of dignity, no matter how poor or damaged the shell that carries it. I don't want people to leave this talk thinking that there are no circumstances under which kids shouldn't go to foster care. There are. Unfortunately, there are, you know, there are too many kids who are abused and neglected who still need the protection of our foster care system and the help of so many great foster parents. But we can take away people's children without stripping them of their dignity. We can sit with them. We can call them by their first and last names. There's this pattern in juvenile court, if you spend any moment in, in juvenile court, or we call people like respondent or mom. And one of my good friends uh, in the, at the University of Pennsylvania wrote this essay, and the essay was, just call my client by her name. Right? Preserve the dignity of the individual. It's exactly what, uh, uh, we have a great juvenile court judge in Washington County. Uh, one of the things he does uh, in termination of parental rights cases, this is sort of the end of the trial where, where we may have to sever the formal relationship between a parent and a child. And with incarcerated parents, he always asks the corrections officers to uncuff and, and, and take off the shackles off of parents. Now, he may end up terminating that parent's rights anyway. Way. But for him, it is so important that we preserve the dignity uh, of, uh, uh, of these individuals. And you should see the looks on the corrections officers, because like, it's just counterculture. No one's doing that. No judge asks them to, to do this. And they have this sort of perplexed look on their face when he asks them to do this. But he's preserving their dignity. To him, it is important that he can do something, use the law, to help our children without uh, taking away the dignity of the individuals before him. Uh, and the third take away is that when we realize these things, uh, life can become really difficult and complicated for us. Right? When you confront injustice, it's easy to become hopeless and frustrated. Because all of a sudden you're going to get yelled at, you're going to get mocked, you'll get ridiculed, you'll have a million things in your world trying to point you into the path that is much easier uh, to take. Um, I got an email. So one of the, the, the best things about my job is I get to do this with, my, uh, with, with law students. 
And my law students are just so used to not being the other, right? They're all, they all come for the most part from places of privilege. They come with money, they come with means. And then I get to sort of pair them up with somebody who is as poor as poor can be, oppressed, sort of ridiculed. And I often think that the most important thing I do with my job is just to make that pairing and watch magical things happen. And it happens semester after semester after semester because their world just gets turned inside out and they come to think, how can this be America? Like, how can this be what justice is all about? And I had an email from a student who, uh, about two weeks ago, uh, where we had gone before our court of appeals in a case where she had just, like, felt like this was so wrong. I'm going to go in front of these three judges who are going to be so convinced that injustice has happened that they're going to write this opinion and save the day. And she wa and it didn't go that way. You know, for anyone who appears before our appellate courts, it often doesn't go that way. Uh, and she was so down after the argument. And about six, it, it was one of these arguments that we left. And I try to come up with something like special to say to pick my students up after this argument. And I couldn't think of anything. So we just sort of walked away uh, and had this moment of, of, of quiet between the two of us. And later that night, she wrote an email to me. And it just said, I wish I had done more. It's just so discouraging and makes me so, so sad for this family. And I'm just thinking, like, that just, like, took the, like, all the air out of me, like, because I just um, wanted to, to somehow s s sort of swoop in and really get her to feel more optimistic. Um, but I think what we need to do, and I hope sort of all of you will sort of join this fight, is redefine what success really means when we work with those who are oppressed. Um, because I do think that there are wins that are often disguised in these tragic losses. And the words of uh, a fellow law professor who does criminal work really stuck to me that I want to share with you. And she said, I came to realize that while there was no justice in what was happening, there was purpose and meaning because I had been there for those guys. I had gone through it with them with all my heart and my soul, and they knew that whatever mistakes I made, I had tried my hardest and done my best. They felt not abandoned, not alone, not unheard. Someone had tried. Someone was bearing witness. And what I've come to learn is that there's such an important role for us to go through this experience with someone who's not in power and just be by their side. And while we may not in the end get the result that we want, um, that experience of just sort of being there to support them when they may fall is in and of itself a huge value that we can add and one that would change uh, systems if more people like all of us would just do that simple act. Now, when I originally had sort of written this talk, I was going to end there with that somewhat, somewhat sort of downer of a message of like, okay, let's redefine success uh, by just kind of you know, sort of bearing witness. Um, but then something like totally amazing happened this week that I just have to share it with you. Uh, and anyone who's been around me uh, for the last couple of days has sort of seen the bounce in my step. Um, so this past Wednesday, so going back to the story of Michelle Gatch, uh, this mother who lost her three-year-old and whose rights were immediately terminated. Um, so a law student of mine argued this case before the Michigan Court of Appeals uh, about a month ago. Uh, and this past Thursday, the Michigan Court of Appeals reversed the termination decision. I and it's like, it's 
awesome on so many different levels. Like this never happens, yeah. right? Like they must affirm about 97% uh, of the uh, of the termination cases uh, that are affirmed uh, before them. Uh, we never win at the court of appeals, and yet they, in a stunning opinion, uh, gave this mom a chance to see her child, who she hasn't seen in over two years now. And this Tuesday, they're having a court hearing in Livingston County where they're going to talk about how to bring this family back together and how to heal this family. And so that to me gave me a, this sort of miracle, I, there's nothing short of a miracle that, that, because when I saw it, I think I kept on saying, oh my gosh, oh my, I, I, I remember the morning when I was sitting with my wife and she's like, what? What's going on? And uh, it, it was nothing short of a miracle. And it, and it, it actually gave me a fourth takeaway that I really want to share with you. And it's actually more of a lesson to myself than to anybody else, which is we cannot grow cynical. Yeah. It is so easy uh, to, 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 to grow cynical, but if we do what God wants us to do, and when we people in power really stand in solidarity with those who have been left aside, um, amazing things uh, can happen. Right? I think Martin Luther King was right when he said that the arc of the moral universe is long, um, but it bends towards justice. Yeah. And I know people in this room know this through the civil rights struggle for same-sex couples. I had the benefit of, uh, and really honor, of testifying in the federal court case um, with Jane DeBoer and um, uh, Jane Rouse uh, and April DeBoer, uh, where it took a long, long, long time to get people to recognize uh, th that this was really a civil rights issue. But in many ways, we got there. And in Michelle's case, what we had was a law student, two law students of mine, read this cold thing. We got, we got appointed to this case. Uh, and it was, we read a transcript, and something in that transcript moved these law students to realize that uh, they cared about this client. So they went out and met her, and they formed an experienced kinship with her. These two law students were so moved by this client story that they went and started calling local law firms and they got a big law firm in Detroit that usually represents you know huge big corporations and all that stuff to believe in our client as well and to write a brief to the Michigan Court of Appeals their collective belief then uh, convinced three so, so going back to the sort of the Court of Appeals not only did we win at the Court of Appeals we won with three Republican conservative judges who don't I, it's, in, it, it's incredible, right? And um, I, I, so I was at this appellate uh, conference, and all these judges came up to me, and they're like, how did you get those three to rule it? And I don't know. I wish I had an explanation for it. Um, and these three judges uh, really uh, stepped up to, to help our client. And this collective belief now um, in a mother who was written off quickly by the system has given hope to lawyers across the country who have now emailed me uh, thanking our students for the work that they did on this case. And one of them said, I can't tell you how many times I've unsuccessfully tried to help mothers like this. It is gratifying to see someone succeed. Thank you for all that you do. And I really hope that this gives sort of a, 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 a lifeline to those who are struggling in places where there isn't a community of those helping them. And so I think to conclude, for me, this is the power of God's message, right? That it, when we're in solidarity with those in needs, when we stand up for them, when we challenge systems, uh, we may not j achieve justice overnight, um, but our time will come. Yeah. So thank you again for the opportunity to speak, and I appreciate it.
Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Vivek, for sharing with us. I don't know about you guys, but I found myself, um, especially here at the end, kind of just strangely moved. You were talking about bearing witness. Because I thought, well, one, this is a congregation that largely bore witness to the oppression of sexual minorities. But it's also something that we can do in our everyday lives. Like, there are people that we see around us who are being oppressed by various systems. And it's such an easy thing to do. But what's at the core of bearing witness seems to be empathy and compassion. And I think those are two things that are just really sorely lacking in a lot of our culture. It's empathy and compassion. And when you look at Jesus, he would look on the crowds and he was moved by compassion for them. And I think that listening to it, it's like your law students say care. And sort of developing a heart and having compassion in the midst of systems that don't necessarily care. And that that can really move to make a difference in this world. And so to give us a chance to respond, we like to do two minutes of silence as a congregation each week. And as part of that, I thought, you know, that, that picture from John chapter, I think it's eight, isn't it? John eight, with the people who are looking to stone the adulteress, that we could do a little guided meditation where for the first minute or so, just picture yourself in the crowd accusing her. And if you'd like, if it's helpful, you can picture somebody that you feel like you've been convicted of judging or a group of people, or you can just imagine the woman in the story. Picture how good it feels to be part of the crowd and to point your finger and to paint someone as the other. And then I'll, I'll give a verbal cue and then switch and picture yourself as the woman on the receiving end of that and let your heart just be moved with compassion and then with Jesus coming and standing with you in that space. So it doesn't have to be perfectly quiet. People, kids make noise. I'll let us know when we change, but here let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come and to move as we picture ourselves in a crowd pointing our fingers. Right, now let's just move to picturing ourselves in the place of the person being accused. And as you picture that, also just listen if Jesus says anything to you in that space, or just kind of watch what he does in your mind's eye.
So Father, give us hearts to love the other. Give us hearts to humanize people when we're tempted to dehumanize people. Give us the courage and the compassion to bear witness and to stand with people who are so easy to characterize as someone not like us. We just ask for your grace in all of this. In your name we pray, amen.